You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. We're going to be looking from verse uh, 21. Now, I wonder what you do to get refreshed. You've been on a long journey, or you've had a tough day at work, and you come home, and you're tired, you're grumpy, you're hungry, and uh, you need to be refreshed. Well, for me, a uh, bath is perfect. Uh, bacon sandwich really, really helps. Nice drink really helps too. Uh, caffeine always helps. There, there are lots of things that can uh, really refresh us. Sometimes I think about that spiritually, that we come to uh, worship together on the Lord's Day, and some of us are tired and we are weary. And it's my hope and my prayer that as we look at God's Word, as we worship together, as we pray together, as we talk with one another, that you may come in tired and weary, but I hope that you won't leave tired and weary. Um, sometimes it can't be helped. Sometimes you're so tired and weary. Uh, I was tempted last week to wake the one person up who I saw sound asleep, but um, that would have been quite rude. But sometimes we are physically overwhelmed, and it's, I find it quite amazing that sometimes I'll go into church and I'll sit there, and, and then suddenly I'm just hit with this overwhelming tiredness. But I think it's just for us enormously refreshing to hear about God. There's a great saying that um, Australians have, at least I like it, they're, you know, no worries. How you doing? No worries. No worries. Um, no worries, mate, is the other one. Um, and I, I, I love that saying because, of course, it's rubbish. Um, they, they, they don't have no worries. Australians are as stressed out as everybody else, despite all the beaches and everything else. No worries. How is it possible for us to have no worries? I was thinking about this, and into my head came a song from a while ago. It's amazing how songs come, are stuck in your head. Uh, Bob Marley, Three Little Birds, Don't Worry About a Thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. Um, woke up this morning, looked at the shining sun, and so on. And I, I think that actually what's happening here in Isaiah 40, it's not that God is saying to the Israelites and to us, no worries, but I think He's saying that all the cares and concerns that we have, if we cast them onto Him, that His shoulders are big enough to take them all. And in that sense, there are no worries. Now, I was enormously encouraged to be able to study and look at this. I hope I can share some of my enthusiasm for it and uh, some of my love for God because of this. Because uh, last week when I spoke on the first or a previous part of Isaiah 40, um, talking about the greatness of God and the all-powerfulness of God. And then in, in the evening, Psalm 62, that God is all-knowing and God is all-mercy. I was sent a uh, sermon by Steve Chalk, and I disagree with Steve Chalk on a lot of different things. 
But compared to anything that he said before, this was dreadful. I mean, this was... I would would actually go as far as to say it was from the pit of hell. And it really depressed me because what he said was this. If you believe in a God who is all-powerful and you believe in a God who is all-knowing, then basically you believe in the God who's evil. I, I was absolutely stunned. He was saying that God can only care if he's not all-powerful, and God can only care if he's not all-knowing. And I just thought, this is where the evangelical church in Britain is heading. And I, I'm, I was, I, personally, I was just personally stunned by it. And uh, then I, I studied this, and I thought, okay, forget Steve Chalk. Let's see what the Bible has got to say. So, verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Here's the question that God asks. Haven't you heard? Don't you know? Because there's a voice that is speaking. It's not that God does not reveal himself. It's not that God is hidden and we have to find him. God is speaking. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. God is telling his people, you have been told again and again and again. You see it in the stars. You see it in the skies. But he's also speaking here of, that's what we call general revelation. You look at the creation and you see something of the creator. But here he's also speaking about special revelation. Haven't you heard? Haven't you been told? There's a, a spiritual sensitivity. Sometimes I think the greatest prayer we can pray for ourselves as a fellowship, for any one of us here, what I pray for you this morning is that you would have ears to hear, that you would be spiritually sensitive, because there's lots of things that would cause that not to happen. One is simply that you're spiritually dead. This is all just goes completely beyond you. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would take His Word and make you spiritually alive. But the other is that you could be a Christian and you're spiritually asleep. You've just become lethargic, worn out. The other is that you could be spiritually distracted, that the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth, the worries about health, what's going to happen tomorrow, everything takes you away from hearing so we pray that God would make us spiritually sensitive. Let me remind you that this is poetry and not science. God is not sitting above the earth. If you start drawing images and pictures of this, it would be entirely wrong. He's not setting up the stars as a literal tent, but it's a great, great image because he's speaking to people who would have known what a nomadic desert lifestyle was, and in fact, for the Jews whose city, capital city, had been taken over and who had been put into exile, this nomadic desert lifestyle may have been something that they feared they were going back to. But they certainly knew what it was, and 
he's using a fantastic image of God is so great that he's taking all the stars and they're like a canopy for him. They're like a curtain. That's what they are to God. Psalm 102, in the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them and they will be discarded, but you remain the same and your years will never end. Or Psalm 104, verse 2, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. God is telling his people, you stare up at the stars. They're my canopy. They are my covering." He's telling his people, you're scared of Babylon. You're scared of Assyria. You're scared of what might be happening. You're scared of your circumstances. But to me, the people are like grasshoppers. And the the, the grasshoppers on the face of the earth, it's a wonderful image of how can the, the grasshoppers make the earth move? They can't do anything. Humanity, we are so arrogant, we think we can control things. Now, people will want to argue about whether climate change is man-made or not, and I'm not going to get into that argument. But I do think that it's beyond arrogance for human beings to say we can control the climate. I don't think we can. We certainly can't control the trajectory of the planets. But God does. Have you not heard, he says... And then he goes on to talk. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. And again, remember the context of Isaiah 40. God's people are about to be swallowed up by a totalitarian conqueror. And God says, wait a minute. Get a theological perspective. Get a right perspective. This is the God who makes the heavens a tent, a cloak. He's not going to leave you, and He's not going to forsake you. I want to uh, apply this a little bit later on, but I think it's very, very important that you and I understand and grasp this, that we are... um, In the words of Calvin, we are very prone to be scared of worms and not to see the glory of the Creator. What can man do to us? Actually, a great deal, but not compared with what God can do in terms of protecting us. They are not, he says, these great rulers are not. I love um, Isaac Watts' great hymn, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, and there's a line in that Time, like an ever-flowing stream, bears all its sons away. They fly, forgotten as a dream. All the great rulers in this world, all the great rulers from the past are dead, and all the great rulers now will die. They change continually. I'm at an age where when I pick up newspapers, 
there's somebody else from my childhood who's died. There's somebody else who is very familiar. Uh, I saw the second Marigold Hotel or second excellent Marigold Hotel, whatever the full title is. Um, if you like quirky British humor, it's brilliant. Uh, Maggie Smith, though, has a great line in it where mixing up her, her words, she says, there is no present like the time. We are given a certain amount of time. The trouble is that we think our time is eternal. We're going to go on forever. We act as, though that if, as if that were the case. But time is always limited. It's a very, very precious gift. And so, God's people are being reminded, He's the King of kings, and He's the Lord of lords, and He's the ruler and the giver of time. Here he uses a word, he calls them, I like the word in Hebrew, the Rosanim, because it just sounds like something out of the Lord of the Rings. You know, here come the Rosanim. Um, the rulers and the Shophethim, the judges, they're there, the rulers and the judges. And what does God do? He says, He brings them to naught. They're scarcely in power. He breathes upon them and they come to nothing. They're like chaff, which is thrown up and the wind blows it away. It comes to nothing. I love this phrase, they're brought to naught, because long before Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, the Bible is talking about existential angst. It all comes to nothing. It's all meaningless. When Stalin lay on his deathbed dying, he was equal to the peasant woman lying on her deathbed dying. All his greatness, all his wealth meant nothing. And that's the same for every single human being. And people look and they say, my hands have done this and I've done this in my life. But what is the point of it all? It's all brought to zero. It's all from nothing to nothing. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And He's the Lord of the stars. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one is missing. Have you noticed how very often when people try and talk about God or when they do theology, they will always try and compare God to something or to someone? But God is incomparable. Calvin says this, will you rob me of your majesty by your comparison? For although men have various thoughts of God and transfer him according to their fancy, yet he continues to be like himself, for he does not change his nature on account of the inventions of men. If you make a God in your own image, if you follow someone else's God made in their own image, then you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Calvin says, lift up your eyes. For while God formed other animals to look downwards for pasture, he made man alone erect and bade him look at what may be regarded as his habitation. Now, I don't know if he's right in that, but I do know that as human beings, we were designed to look outward, to look upward, to look beyond ourselves. And the more we look at ourselves all the time, then the less we actually know ourselves in the context of who God is. To whom will you compare me? He says, I am the Holy One. 
God is not only great, His greatness is matched by His moral majesty. Remember Isaiah's first vision of the, of the seraphim. They were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's not just that the power of God in creation is there, but the holiness of God is there. Holiness and creation. I haven't really thought about this, but they, they, they go together in the Bible a huge amount. And that's important for us, even when we're worshiping. Because what, you, what you're doing in here, you see, there's a big temptation. I come in here and I think, I'd like to hear good singing. I'd like to hear good music. I'd like to hear good preaching. Uh, you know, I'd like to friendly people, and I, I'd like to get something that helps me. But before all of that, I need to be thinking, I'm actually coming into the presence of a holy God. Now, you may be super spiritual, and you may be saying, I'm always in the presence of God. Yeah, you don't act like it. You don't. And I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I don't believe that you are consciously walking around all the time as if you were in the presence of a holy God. That's why one of the reasons we gather together in public worship, we come for a specific purpose, to come into God's presence. It's not that He lives in this building, but He inhabits the praises of His people, and He's here. And that's why being casual or flippant or religious or super spiritual or hypocritical, that's why it's not appropriate coming in to the presence of a holy God. We often say we would love to know the presence of God. But sometimes when you know the presence of God, it's, it's terrifying. You're, you're conscious. This is beyond anything I've ever experienced, and it scares you. Last Sunday, we were singing, I think, Psalm 51. I was very conscious of not just the harmony, but the emotion and the feeling. And at some point, you could hear a pin drop. Because I believe that we realized we were coming into the presence of a holy God. There's a challenge here for Israel. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal? Don't dare compare me to the gods of Assyria or Babylon. Don't compare me. You're in the presence of a holy God. I'm not making comparisons. Well, um, next Sunday evening, I hope to look at the question of the uniqueness of Jesus and try and answer the question of uh, why Jesus rather than Mohammed or Buddha. The answer is because you cannot compare God to Mohammed and Buddha. You can't. Don't even begin to try that. It just doesn't work. We are in the presence of a holy God, and that's why when people come and say, well, I think God should do this, and I would like a God to be like that, you need to stop. Don't dare compare God with you. You're not God. You want to come into the presence of the real God. It's interesting when he's talking about the stars here, lift the eyes and look to the heavens. The Assyrians were great astrologers, and I think that there's a play here, a, a, a kind of mimicry on horoscopes and astrologers. Uh, I've never, ever, I'm afraid I've, I don't understand this. Some of you will understand it. Um, I hope you're long past it by now. But I've never understood people who read horoscopes and stuff. Um, I've always thought they were just the most ridiculous things in the world. But they're very, very popular. And lots of people will read their horoscope, and it will affect their lives, and it will affect their behavior. 
So I thought, okay, let's break the habit of a lifetime and let's read my horoscope for this weekend. So I did. I went, there's lots that you can get. So just in case you're interested, um, this is my life for this weekend. Take a little time to organize Saturday night plans too. Well, I missed that one. Cutting loose with an adventurous crowd of culture vultures will be the perfect way to unwind. That was the DCA for you. With Mercury, I'm sorry, I have to say this without laughing, but I did, I laughed out loud when I led this. With Mercury opposing revelatory Jupiter on Sunday, you may be feeling a little raw and exposed. So please be gentle with me. But that's okay. It's called being human. Don't try to deny your emotions. Push them away or hide beneath the veneer of bravado. That only blocks people from supporting you. There's a surprising twist to the day's events. The people you thought would judge you for not being on your game will actually be a great source of compassion if you open up to them. Finally, an authentic chapter can begin in some stuck relationships, including business-related connections. Now, what is that? First of all, it's just waffle. And it's bound to be true for somebody, and it's probably bound to be true for you because it's so vaguely general. But secondly, it's illogical garbage. You you think Jupiter and, was it revelatory Jupiter and Mercury are opposing one another, and because of that, you are human, and you're going to feel a little raw and sensitive? Listen, I'm human, I'm feeling a little raw and sensitive anyway. It's got nothing to do with Jupiter and, and Mercury fighting one another in the heavens. And yet human beings buy into that all the time. And that's what's happening here in Isaiah, that I think he's saying, you look at the stars, but consider the one who made them. The stars are not gods, but creatures. The stars don't control us and our fate. God controls the stars. We can count the stars. Look what he does. He names them one by one. He calls them like pet dogs, Fido. Jupiter, whatever you want. He knows every single one of the hundred billion stars. Every single one. He names them. And their number is never less than complete. There's a wonderful military image used here. The stars are God's army. You know how in armies, the the soldiers don't often have names. So, uh, again, if we go back to Lord of the Rings, the vast armies of the orcs. Notice the orcs generally don't have names. They just get slaughtered all the time. Well, one of the things that happens in armies is you do dehumanize the soldiers. When you were in the First World War shooting at the trenches, you weren't shooting somebody with a name, unless you called them a Hun or, or a Tommy or whatever. You used, the, you, you, in order to kill people, you have to dehumanize them. But what's happening here is God is using this picture of the armies, and it's an extraordinary uh, picture of how the the stars are God's army, and He knows them all. He names them. And what He's saying is, this is the precision, not the absence of God's control. This is not random events happening, God looking on and going, oh, I didn't see that one. I didn't see this thing coming. I didn't see that happening. Anthony Flew, who was before Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous intellectual atheist, became convinced that there was a God. And he said this, science spotlights three dimensions of nature that point to God. The first is the fact that nature obeys laws. 
The second is the dimension of life, of intelligent, organized, and purpose-driven beings which arose from matter. The third is the very existence of nature. But it's not science alone that has guided me. I've also been helped by a renewed study of all the classic philosophical arguments. Now, what he's just saying is simply this. There is plenty evidence in creation of a creator and of organization. And that's what the Bible is telling us. God is Lord of the stars. To whom will you compare me? I know them all. I name them all. I control them all. They're like a cloak for me. They're like clothing. They, as the psalm says, will wear out. But he goes on. And that leads up to this grand situation. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Now, this is a key issue, and this is the important thing for you to grasp. And if you grasp this, and you're a believer, it will help you enormously. All that's been said so far has revealed God as the all-powerful creator, the King of kings, the sovereign Lord, He alone. So the question then for the Israelites is, so why is your faith failing? And the question for you is, if you believe that, why are you so discouraged? Why are you so downcast? Why is your faith failing? Why, for some of you, do you feel like giving up? Why do you feel as if God doesn't care? Why do you feel as if God isn't there? Because you've made a wrong inference from God's transcendence. In other words, God's almightiness, you've inferred from that that God is too great to care. This is Chalk's mistake. He's too great to care. Why should the one who wears the stars like a cloak be bothered with little me? He doesn't know my way, says Israel. He's disregarding it. He's unfair. If God is all-powerful, then he can't care. And that's because we are taking a very human analogy. This passage, I think, should be entitled, God, our ever-present help. But you see, our idea of the help, if you've seen the film from uh, Mississippi, the help is the servant who helps the greater person. God is our help. We can't get our heads around this image of God being so much more powerful, so much more greater, so much better than us, and yet coming to help us. Human beings have never been able to grasp that. It's a really hard thing to grasp. So what we do is we either put us in the position that we're helping God or we lessen God. We make Him less than He is so that we can comprehend why He would do anything to help us. But this is the, as I keep saying, this is the key issue. God is not too great to care. It's that He's too great to fail. He's too great to fail in care. And that is so, so, so important. Psalm 62, we saw this last week. Two things I know, that you, O Lord, are powerful and that you, O Lord, are merciful. If you grasp that, it changes absolutely everything. There's kind of daft questions in these, you know, can God have lost sight of me? The way I travel is so difficult that he can't get hold of that. Lord, I've gone down this path. This has happened in my life. I never knew this was going to happen. And then what we do is we say, but then you mustn't have known. You can't care. But he does know. We're judging him by our standards. We're saying people don't understand. 
were saying, people get fed up with me. Well, maybe God has got fed up with me. And Isaiah says, no, listen, he is the everlasting God. That means there's no time when he is not. The ends of the earth are his. There's no place where he is not. He is all-powerful, so he doesn't get tired. He is all-knowing, so lack of understanding cannot limit him. We cannot understand him. We can know him as he reveals himself to us, but we cannot understand him. We cannot put God in a box. The word that he uses here is a great word. He says that it's, um, we can't investigate God. The finite mind cannot comprehend the infinite. Please don't come and sit here and listen to a sermon and think, I'm going to analyze this. I'm going to see if the sermon is any good or the preacher is any good. And don't dare fall into the trap, which you will do, of saying, I'm going to see if God is any good. As though you have the option of getting up and walking out of here and saying, ah, that God's not good enough for me. We're not playing here. This is not a game. This is for real. And this is the real God. We do not. His understanding, no one can fathom. You can't investigate God. And I think with that, we could be really, really afraid because we could end up with the Islamic God. And what do I mean by that? I mean a God who is so far away and so distant that there is no possibilities of human beings having any relationship with him. The only thing that you can ever do is submit to the will of Allah. And even at the very end of your days, Allah could turn around and say, nah, forget it, you're going to hell, no matter how good a Muslim you've been. That's a, a religion that chills me to the bone in so many ways, not because of the Islamic militancy, but because of the utter hopelessness contrasted with the glory of the God of the Bible. And look how that works itself out. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint." You see what he's done brilliantly. In this poem, brilliantly. God is all powerful. God takes the stars, wraps them around like a cloak. But this same God takes us and gives us his power. You know, you sometimes see these television preachers going, I feel the power, I feel the power, and I'm going to do this, zap, and someone falls over. As though it's some kind of like Star Wars thing. The power of God, boom, you fall over, boom, you're healed. And you think, this is trickery. This is as bad as astrology. The power of God is not making people fall over. Though that can happen. Of course that can happen. The power of God is not people being healed. Though that can happen too. The power of God is this, that he's the one who's created the whole universe and he imparts to us strength when we need it. And that strength may not mean that we're cured of our cancer, but it will mean that we will glorify him through that cancer. He's the author of life. He's the author of strength, the author of beauty. And this is the amazing thing is, he gives it to the weary, to those who are tired, just exhausted from life and the hardness of life. Even youths, he says, get tired. And he uses a word that basically says, when you go to, you pick your team. You know, I'm picking you, you're a young man, you're a young man, you're a young man, you're a young man, but you're not very fit, no, too many pies, no, uh, you, I'm not pointing at anyone in particular, by the way, sorry, if, if you did feel that, that was a personal word of rebuke, no, but, you know, basically, I mean, young guys who are hunks, 
You know, they are, they are, they are, they, they can run, they can wrestle, they can do anything, you know, and some of you guys will be going, well, that's me, thank you. Um, but you get tired as well. You get weary as well. You get exhausted as well. You get physically tired, mentally tired, emotionally tired, spiritually tired, exhausted. That happens, but those who wait for the Lord, they renew their strength. And the hope, those who hope in the Lord, it's a, it's a word that speaks of a string that's been stretched as though you're under a lot of stress and that hope is stretched, but your strength will be renewed. And literally, that is change strength. It's as though outwardly you're wasting away, inwardly you're being renewed day by day. It's the idea of um, having one set of clothes and changing another set of clothes. It's coming in utterly exhausted, covered in dirt, having a shower, reclothing yourself. It's the idea of exchange. It's the idea of the swap shop. It's the idea of giving God our weakness and receiving His strength. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul was sick. He pleaded with the Lord to take away his sickness because it was debilitating him. It was hindering him in his work. And the Lord said to him, no, my strength is made perfect in weakness. It's like a, an energy drink. I hope you don't do the Red Bull stuff. But, or, or caffeine or whatever. You know what caffeine does, of course. It gives you a temporary high and then knocks you down even lower. God doesn't do that. That's not what he's talking about here. There's an, uh, I can't even remember the psalm. I just, it's in my head because I remember singing it, the old 1650 metrical version of, it might be Psalm 18. Someone will know it anyway. And it just had this line that as a child, it stuck in my head. By my God assisting me, I overleap a wall. I love that line. <laughs> I just, you know, I just look, see a 10-foot high wall and go, yep, God can give me a leg over. That, and I think it's just, it's just a quaint translation. But that's the idea here. Colossians 1.29, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. That's what it means to work with the power and the energy of God. Look, you are exhausted. You are shattered. You are battered. You, you can hardly keep going on. You need the strength and the power of God in your life. Because I love this. They will soar on wings like eagles. What he's saying is a natural impossibility. You look at the eagle, and, and honestly, to look at an eagle is incredible. I remember going hill walking with my mother and seeing my first wild eagle, and I, I could have sat there all night, um, especially since my mother wanted me to go climb more hills, but I, I could have. And, but just to see that eagle, it just... How did it fly? It didn't move its wings. They'll soar on wings like eagles. The, effort, the eagle seems to soar effortlessly. Now, I'm not saying that this promises that in your life, everything will always be easy. But what it does promise is that you will soar. And you don't just soar when the things are going well. You soar when things are going really difficult. And these last two things where he says, um, they will run and not grow weary. See how it goes down? They'll soar on wings like evils. They'll, they'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint. Run is kind of the exceptional demands, the spurts of energy that you're needed. Walk is just the day-to-day -day grind. And what's being told here is that God gives you His strength for them all. 
See, I think that the connection here, if you get it, is itself invigorating and energizing. Because you're going, Lord, I can't do this. Lord, I'm worn out. And God goes, yep, I know. But I can. Yeah, but who are you? I'm the one who takes the stars and they're like a cloak to me. So you think of the energy in one star, that's nothing to me. That's just a freckle. That's nothing. And you're saying, oh, I can hardly stand. And God's saying, yeah, but I'll help you. I'll be with you. And then you grasp that. You grasp that in the context of the church. You grasp that in the context. Yeah, I will mention this. I was thinking about mentioning this or not. The Courier yesterday had an amazing story. Headline. Front page, page two, page three. I actually couldn't believe it. Later on, it had another page I'll tell you about. But these three pages were about how the church is declining in Perth and Dundee and Fife overall. It was particularly about the Church of Scotland, but it was also mentioning other churches. And a page later on was talking about Brody Baptist Church and how it was growing and developing. And in all the quotations from ministers and so on, you know what I missed? No mention of God. No mention of God. No mention of the power of God. Now, in my view, we should close every single church unless God is present with us. How do we expect to continue in our own energy and our own strength? That is absolutely impossible. I am sinful. You are sinful. Collectively, we are sinful. We have no hope of standing. We are weak. But God is holy. God is pure. God is righteous. God is kind. God is merciful. And God gives his people strength so that we soar on wings like eagles. I love that. I want to soar. I don't want the kind of spiritual junk food that's the Pepsi Max stuff that tells you, you're going to live life to the max because you drink this sugar drink. Or No, I just want to know God. Romans 11 says this, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And quotes then this. We've just been looking at who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor. What a relief that God doesn't have to rely on us to sort things out. What a relief that he's not waiting for us to come and tell him how to fix things. What a relief that we can come to him and we can say, Lord, I don't understand why my friend has cancer. I don't understand why this is happening in my life. I don't understand why this is happening in the church. I don't understand what's wrong with my marriage. And he says, I know, I know, I know. I am the one who gives you strength. I know and I understand. And that's how you come to Jesus and Jesus just simply says this. He's saying, look at, he's saying, look at God. I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today 
and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, some people read that far, and they then go, oh, that's great. That means God's going to give me clothes, and God's going to give me food, and everything's going to be great. That is not what the verse says. Because he goes on to say, stop worrying about these things. Do not worry saying, what should we eat, or what should we drink, or what should we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not seek these things and use his kingdom to try and get them, which is the mistake we often make. Seek him, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In one sense, that last phrase is not the most inspiring motto of the world. Each day has got enough trouble. Just, he's not saying just lie back and cope with it. He's saying our God is so great. He knows and he's able to take you through every single day. If you are not a Christian, I simply say to you, what have you got that is even remotely like that? You have nothing. You will be brought to naught, as we've just read. And so you must come to know Jesus Christ and and give your life to Jesus Christ and follow Jesus Christ. But if you are a Christian, I do want to encourage each and every one of you. Some of you, you're like the youth you know, you've, you've got loads of energy, you've got loads of spiritual energy, and you're right on a high and a buzz. That's fantastic, and that's great, and please share some of that with us. But you will become weary, and some of you, I know, are weary. Your weariness with a tiredness that you can't even explain to people. You're tired of yourself, you're tired of other people, you're sick of your own sin, you're sick of circumstances in life, the darkness, the darkness, it just comes in and it comes in and it comes in. And the enormous temptation is to try and fix it and to try and get it sorted and to say, I'll just get one more and I'll be fine. And to do it under your own strength. When the solution is set before you very, very simply, your hope is only in Christ. But what a Christ. What a Christ you have. He will never leave you or forsake you. He gives you energy. He gives you strength. He gives you peace. He gives you beauty. He gives you his Holy Spirit. What a Christ you have. You walk out of this building supposing you had lost everything. You walk out with Christ. You walk out with absolutely everything. Somebody said to me, coming in, I, I must, must have been unusual. I must have been smiling or something. They said, you look very happy today, as though it was very unusual. Why are you so happy? I said, oh, I'm enjoying the cricket or whatever. Well, maybe. But if I knew, if I grasp who Christ is, then I, I, I walk out of here floating six feet high. Jesus is mine and I am his. What more can I need? Let's pray. Lord, help us to grasp the beauty and the wonder of what we have read. Lord, help those who are broken and who are confused and hurt and wounded and tempted and struggling and filled with guilt. Help each one to see your holiness, but also to experience the touch of the angel coming with the call from the altar saying, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Help us to see that in Christ we have forgiveness. 
In Christ we have hope. In Christ we have renewal. In Christ is our strength. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.